Good afternoon, Metro Augusta. This is Janice Allen Jackson welcoming you to the January 13th edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. Today's show is brought to you by Janice Allen Jackson and Associates. You can learn more about me, my firm, and the services we provide at janiceallenjackson.weebly.com. Also there at the Local Matters tab, there is a listing of all of the shows that I've done since March of last year. Today, my guest is Bob Young, former mayor of Augusta, and we're going to talk about the most recent runoff election, the results and the implications for Georgia and our country, and have an honest discussion about why we saw two Democratic candidates win those Senate seats, what the future is for Georgia, taking a look forward at the gubernatorial race two years from now, and the successes of the Democrats and honestly, the failures of the Republican Party. Many of the questions I have heard so far have been, did uh, the Republican Party and Donald Trump lose the elections or did Stacey Abrams and the Democrats win it? So we'll assess that question. But before we get there, I think we have to have some discussion about our country. So much has happened since the last time the show ran. In fact, I think while the show was running last week, uh, that uh, raid on the Capitol, the riot at the Capitol, whatever you want to call it, was taking place. Uh, that has given us a lot to think about. And I think the most salient question I have seen being asked is, has our country hit rock bottom? Or can we go lower from here? And obviously, none of us have a crystal ball um, but I will say that the feelings that I had as I watched that unfold and now as I read more about it uh, seems as though every day, particularly in some of the national newspapers, there's some new information about who was involved, uh, how it happened, the particular failings of uh, the various institutions, the resignations, the threat of impeachment for the second time uh, as all of that unfolds. it looks sadder and sadder. And it reminds me of what happened in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. As I watched various cities across the United States go up in flames, I was sad. I was just really sad. I was dismayed. I understood why it was happening, but that didn't make me feel any better. As I watched what unfolded at the Capitol last week, I was equally sad, but there was also a dose of anger associated with it. Um, I was angry because I knew, like so many others have said, and it's not news, but if this were a group of Muslims or a group of African Americans storming the Capitol in that manner, the outcome probably would have been much, much different. So I was grappling with all of that at the time that I watched that um, since then, you know, as I think about the congressional staffers and those who were hiding under desk and uh, things like that. I mean, our country has just really gotten 
to a place where I never thought we would be. Um, for some of us who've been around for a long time and we thought that we had our eyes opened, uh, things just appear to get more surprising and uh, more uh, discouraging. Uh, so uh, there's a lot for us to think about and unpack uh, as we move forward towards uh, January 20th. Uh, as I think I said last week, many of the things that we hated about 2020 have followed us into 2021. Uh, and that even a simple statement like that feels like an understatement uh, at this point as, as we look at where we are. Uh, coronavirus now up over 375,000 deaths. Um, uh, just look at the hostility, um, look at the anger, but I think it has forced a number of people to take sides. Clear lines have been drawn in the sand and people have had to determine what side of that line that they are going to stand upon. Right now, uh, we'll go to our special guest and talk Georgia politics. My guest today is Bob Young. Uh, as we discussed after the November 3rd election on that particular time, we did a show called What Color is Georgia? Uh, today is sort of What Color is Georgia Part 2, uh, but with a twist, and that twist being taking a look at the question of how did Georgia turn blue and what was the primary impetus behind that shift? Uh, as I have read various news articles, some are giving the credit for that entirely to Stacey Abrams and uh, the machinery that she put in place after she lost the governor's race uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, on the other hand, I have seen some who come out and said, this is 100% on Donald Trump. If there were not such a high level of dissatisfaction with his presidency and his actions, particularly of late, uh, this would have been easy for Georgia to stay red and for uh, Kelly Leffler and uh, David Perdue to return to the U.S. Senate from Georgia. So uh, tell me, Bob, what do you think about those questions? <laughs> well, that's a mouthful, but I see you're wearing red today. You're not wearing blue. Uh <laughs> and there's a reason. Let me say the reason I wear red today is because I'm very specific. Uh, I'm a member of the Augusta Alumni Chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority. Our Founders Day is coming up, and this is our Wear Red Day. So okay. no political implications <laughs> at all for well, <laughs> me wearing red today. Just want to make sure nobody was left behind here. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of validity uh, to the argument that uh, Stacey won and Trump lost in, in the big picture. Uh, for the past two years since she lost the governor's race, uh, Stacey Abrams has been on a mission to elect Democrats in Georgia in statewide contests. And uh, I think uh, this, is a, this is the first big marker from that initiative. And we'll know in two more years uh, how, how broadly she can cast this net of bringing disenfranchised and new voters uh, into the, the election process. And I, I'll make a prediction for you today. I, I truly believe based on what I saw uh, in, in the runoff in Georgia and on November 3rd, I, I, I believe Stacey Abrams is gonna be our next governor. 
And that's because Democrats have, uh, they, they've secured the ground game. They know how to play it. They know how to play it better than Republicans do. And uh, I, I really fault uh, the state party leadership uh, in Georgia, the Republican party leadership for not, not standing up to the challenge that Stacey Abrams uh, presented. And, you know, we had two years to get ready. I, I say we, I'm, uh, people know I'm a Republican. Uh, you know, we had two years to get ready for the conflict this year, and clearly we were outmatched. And I like to look at it this way. We lost, we, we lost a battle. And when generals lose battles, they get fired. And uh, to, by my way of thinking, I think the, the leadership of the state Republican Party in Georgia had its chance. They lost the state to the Democrats in the presidential election. They lost two U.S. Senate seats. Uh, there's a price to be paid for that, and they need to vacate their positions, and let's get some new, new blood and new leadership uh, in it. Uh, I, there were two, two other things I observed that uh, I think really tipped the balance, uh, Janice, and that is the, the two Democratic candidates, uh, Warnock and, and uh, Ossoff, uh, were both being labeled as, as radical socialists by the Republicans. Um, that didn't stick. It didn't stick at all. And there's no question that the, the, the commercials we saw, the appeals that were being made by the Democrats really resonated much more with voters than the, uh, the radical and socialism uh, message from the Republicans. Uh, and I didn't help that uh, Leffler and uh, Purdue, two of the richest members, if not the two richest members in the US Senate, uh, were involved in these stock trades uh, at the time uh, COVID was identified. Uh, whether it was legal or not, doesn't matter. It uh, doesn't matter. The, the Democrats were, were very uh, successful in pulling at, putting a scarlet letter uh, on those two, two rich Republicans is that they were out of touch with us because they were cashing in. Uh, rightly or wrongly, they were cashing in on the, on the pandemic. So uh, it was just a smarter it was a smarter campaign by the Democrats, a very poor, uh, poorly run campaign by the Republicans. I think that played into uh, uh, that and Stacey Abrams organizing of voters really played very well together. And that's why that's why uh, the Democrats prevailed at a, at a statewide level in, in Georgia in those two Senate races and in the, the presidential race. But, you know, Trump, you can't discount Trump. So, uh, people love Trump. I'm, I'm a Trump supporter. We can get into that, how much of a Trump supporter I am now, we can talk about it later. But uh, if there had not been a pandemic, there's no question it would have been a cakewalk for Donald Trump. But there was this huge perception the pandemic was mishandled, uh, that uh, people were feeling pain, but folks in Washington were not feeling any pain. I think the most overused slogan of this whole pandemic is that we're in it together. We're all in it together. We're not in it together. Uh, there are people who are making money off this. There are other people in unemployment lines. There are people who are facing eviction. There are people in long food lines. There are folks that are simply scared to death to leave their, their home. There are businesses that are failing. There are public employees who have not missed one nickel of pay since this started. So it's very hypocritical to say we're all in this together because we're not. We're not. And we have to be sensitive to each other's situation and position in this and those in authority ought to not only be sensitive, but ought to be able to respond to it. And, and that, was, that was the great failing. 
it just blew up. I think the thing I, I realized Trump would be in trouble when uh, the stock market began to drop and it dropped precipitously, as you remember, um, back in March, it just went into free fall and the strong economy had been Trump's calling card. Uh, when people complained about everything else that was happening, what he would say was, but the economy is doing great. Folks are working. The unemployment rate, even among uh, people of color, is lower you know, than ever. And he used that and he used that. And then you know, within a couple of weeks, he couldn't use it anymore because everything changed at once. And that was when I realized that uh, he was going to be in big, big trouble. And I thought the chance would be there for, for him to lose. Um, of course, didn't have the crystal ball out at that point to look at it state by state. Um, but I'm not surprised at what happened in Georgia. Um, ironically, uh, one of the things that I have caught wind of just in terms of talking to the folks on the ground, so to speak, the field, the people who feel like they have been leading get out the vote efforts forever. Some of them aren't huge Stacey Abrams fans. I mean, <laughs> some, some uh, of them are, and I was shocked to find that. Um, but I, I have picked up on it. Some of it amounts to, um, petty type of jealousy issues. Um, but even if they didn't like Stacy, they liked what she stood for, uh, which was we got to get registered to vote. We got to get to the polls and we got to get rid of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to get rid of all of the Trump enablers. Uh, when you talk about the uh, ads that were run by the Republicans, if I put together the ads and then I put together the debate performance, you know, the Atlanta Press Club had a debate mm -hmm. between Reverend Raphael yeah. Warnock and Kelly Leffler. And it just seemed like she was on some type of weird autopilot where she had been told by her handlers to give that response, the radical liberal socialist response to every question instead of really trying to respond directly to what was being asked of her. And for people like me, that gave me the impression that she was not capable of thinking on her feet enough to respond directly to a question. Well, if you say her something often enough, people are supposed to believe it. So perhaps that's the track she was on. If I say this often enough, people will come away with, yeah, it's got to be, that's got to be the way it is because uh, that's, that's what the message she, she stuck to. But I, I don't, it, but it didn't stick. There was no Velcro it on stick. it. And it insults our intelligence, quite frankly, Bob. I think it insults our intelligence to think that just because you kept saying it, that I'm going to believe it. So there were a series of tactical mistakes. Hmm. On the other hand, the Warnock team, when I looked at his ads, the very first ad that came out after it was clear that he was the leading vote getter in the jungle primary was the one where he said, a lot of lies are gonna be told to you about me. So, they just jump right ahead and they made it cute. You know, he's eating pizza with the fork and he hates puppies and, you know, that sort of stuff. It was cute. It was charming, but it got the message across as look out for the lies. And oh. I thought that set the tone for everything else that she would say for the remainder of the campaign. Well, the, those of us who are old enough to have been around through many campaigns know there are 
they're all full of lies. <laughs> right, that's, right. A, that's a blanket right. statement you can say for everyone. But I, I think uh, uh, Warnock did a great job of humanizing himself and, he did. and showing us he's not some scary creature that has come out of the swamp uh, to, to devour us. Um, that he was, he was somebody who cared about us, somebody who uh, did not articulate a lot of detail about positions that he supported. He never would say whether he would support packing the court for one, one example. But uh, we were left with, with uh, uh, at least a sense that here's somebody who's not going to take our children out and do some strange things with them, that he's a, he seemed to be a very decent person. That's yeah. the image that, uh, that was presented. And uh, it, it prevailed over the image that he was some radical social socialist. Right. Exactly. He, he did come across as very human, uh, he came across as someone with moral authority. I could tell. Oh, from, yeah. yeah. And I think that was one of the reasons that he was uh, the choice of those who were making the major endorsements in the race. Um, as pastor of a significant church in Metro Atlanta, a historic church in Metro Atlanta, um, they just made uh, him come across as I'm going to be somebody that is interested in what happens to you. And I'm a regular person. That was what was coming across in all of his uh, material. On the other side of the equation in the Purdue Ossoff race, um, it almost to me got offensive for Purdue's commercial that basically say they're going to tear up your country and I'm going to save it. You just need me to save you was the message that I was hearing from him. What do you think you were hearing? I wasn't hearing any discussion of issues at all. Uh, it was, uh, the Republicans exclusively ran attack ads. And mm -hmm. I, I, I still don't know what David Perdue stands for today. Uh, right. Other than he's the firewall against socialism. What does that mean? Um, I just think it was a very poorly run campaign, but then he and Kelly had so much baggage. I, I don't know how you overcome the baggage and the fact that Kelly had not been through an election before uh, that she was an, she was appointed and had been right. in office less than a year. Right. Uh, that, that didn't help her cause at all. In fact, I think out of uh, the four uh, candidates that she had the fewest votes, I think of, of, of the four, uh, yeah. she didn't even have as many votes as Purdue had. And they were running in, on the same ballot. Right, right. Uh, but I, I think her loss uh, is something that uh, that the governor needs to take a particular note up because he appointed her because of what she was going to be able to do to bring more voters uh, into the Republican Party, particularly suburban women. But I mean, that's a lot of folks did not agree with that appointment. They thought Doug Collins should have gotten it. I'm one of those people, but I respect the right of the governor. He's got. It's, it's up to him to appoint somebody and we respect his decision and who he appoints. We don't have to agree with it. And then we have an election where we can, we can change that if we want to. But uh, she didn't bring suburban women uh, to the Republican Party. Uh, and I, I think one of the failings there is uh, how many suburban women live in mansions in Buckhead and are, are uh, billionaires. That, uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know the <laughs> suburban women. I don't know the suburban, other than Janice, I don't know suburban women who can relate to Kelly. Uh, you know, she's just way, way out of the out of the mainstream. But uh, anyway, that was the choice the governor made, and, and he's got to live with the consequences of it. And I don't think that helps him two years from now. Yeah, yeah. Do you It'll, think the, the, the argument will be easy to make that uh, that the governor lost that seat because he appointed the wrong person? 
So they they can blame the loss on him. Yeah, they can br- blame Kemp. Uh, he definitely didn't make a great choice there. Um, they can also blame, uh, as you said, the the lack of agenda items. And this is something, lack of issues, positions on issues. Uh, this is something I've seen historically with Republicans, unfortunately. No offense, Bob, but when I was in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, we, we that was the only board I actually worked with that was partisan. They actually ran as Democrats and Republicans. And... I would recall, you know, some nights we would be sitting there in a board of county commissioners meeting and uh, Republicans would just rail against whatever the issue was. And then one day, one of the Democratic members turned around and went, so can you tell us what you're for? You're against everything, but what are you for? And I think that was the exact same dynamic at work here. Uh, The next tactical era that I will point to is the decision that Donald Trump come back to the state to campaign in the late uh, hours, in the last few days of the campaign, he comes in. And yeah, he was up in North Georgia where I would presume he believes his base is, but dude, you've already lost the state. Why do you think it's helpful for you to come here? Well, his base, he, he needed his base to, to come back back out because typically in runoffs, the voter turnout is less than in the general election. So Mm -hmm. he needed to energize his base and get it back. And he went to Northwest Georgia because the pre-election day voting, the early voting was lagging uh, what it was in the general election. But the trouble was it lagged all the way up through January 5th. Mm -hmm. His presence in Northwest Georgia really didn't do anything to boost Republican voting in Northwest Georgia. uh, but he here again, he had I think he felt he had an obligation to come and talk to his base and uh, whatever inspiration he could give to them to motivate them and, and the people they know and influence to come back and vote was was really important. Uh, but in hindsight, it was really a wasted trip. Yeah, he it was not a commercial. Just let him run a commercial. <laughs> well, I don't even know if he should have done that, because that. I likely motivated a lot of anti-Trump folks to come out and say, wait a minute, Trump feels this strongly about these folks. Nah. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> nah. I, think people, I think people knew that. People knew that from day one. But this, uh, the, 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 the results of that, the Senate runoff really uh, uh, reinforces the old adage that uh, in politics, if you want to run for office, people are not going to make a change just because they have an opportunity to make change. They're going to make change because the person who's in there now has done something they don't like or has taken a position that they are opposed to. Or they, they have, voters have to have a reason to make change. And, and the voters saw that, uh, that the Republican ticket, if you want to call it that, in the runoff uh, needed to be changed. That was not the direction uh, that they wanted to go. They wanted to, to try a new direction. And so that's, that's really a lesson every incumbent needs to know that, uh, you know, you give the voters a reason for change and doggone it, they'll make it. They'll make it. Um, One other thing, and then I'm going to let you go. You made reference to a little bit earlier on uh, that you believe that Stacey Abrams will, in fact, run for governor in two years and will, in fact, win. Um, Obviously, I don't have any inside track into her camp, but I... um, 
it seems like she's really enjoying uh, this opportunity not to be an elected official. <laughs> Most so, of us do. <laughs> Most of us do. And, yeah. and, but she's doing it in a way, she's able to accomplish things now not being elected that she never would have been able to accomplish as an elected official. And that's something that I think will play into her calculus. Uh, she may decide that it is easier to uh, push other candidates, be the wind underneath the wings of other candidates, yeah. advise them on policy, and thereby have more influence because she doesn't have the constraints of somebody who has to report back to a constituency. I don't know, but I just throw that out for free. Well, no, Janice, that's, you're right on point that uh, you, people can be most effective when they're really outside of government as opposed to being in, inside of government. And, and I have no doubt she's going to run. I don't think you come as close as she did two years ago to walk away from another chance, to, to, a chance to have a redo, if you will. And uh, she's built a tremendous uh, machine and she's got two more years to continue building uh, that machine. And the Republicans are, if they're playing at all, they're playing catch up. And I just don't believe uh, in two years they're gonna be able to catch her. And, and I, she's more than a force to be reckoned with. I think she's the force that's gonna prevail in two years. Now I wanna come back and talk to you in two years uh, after she loses and I'm wrong. But I, looking at the numbers today, Looking at the numbers today, the demographics, and we're going to know a lot in a few weeks when the census numbers come out and we see what Georgia demographics look like in 2020. Uh, that gives you a, a way to play into 2022. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things, uh, and I'll just touch on this briefly because I know you don't want to talk all day about this. The, the legislature uh, is, is going to have to reapportion the state based on the 2020 right. census. Right. And, and in the past, we've always talked about, well, we're going to divide it up. Uh, we're going to make sure there are minority seats. There are majority seats. There are uh, uh, communities of uh, common influence that are put together. We're going to divide the state up in those kinds of districts. But I think one thing we haven't anticipated that we're going to have to deal with uh, in the next census is coming into play the purpleness of Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, as we draw these districts, uh, if the Republican members wanna protect themselves, you can't just say, well, we're gonna move minority neighborhoods out of the district and make it safer for you. Because now in majority districts, there are a lot of folks who vote like minorities do, who vote right. Democrat. And, and the people who draw the map are gonna have some huge challenges and huge decisions to make about who stays and who goes as they draw those district lines. All right, great. Bob, it's been a great conversation as always, as we get prepared to close out this segment. Is there anything you want to share with us? Uh, well, yes, a, a shameless plug. Uh, <laughs> and there's no harm in that, no harm at all. No, this is this is a book I wrote about three years ago. And those, those uh, I'm sorry, it's picture isn't working right, but uh, it's called The Hand of the Wicked. Uh, those of you who are really interested in social justice, this is a true story out of Tolliver County. It happened in the summer of 1865, a murder case of an elderly African-American woman killed for no reason at all, other than she was uh, she didn't like the way she was being treated. And uh, the president of the United States got involved in the case, the two men sentenced to hang for killing her. It's a horrible story what, what came out of this. But it shows that what you hear now, the cries for social justice today are nothing new. They've been with us a long time. And the, the book, The Hand of the Wicked shows that right here in this part of Georgia, been around for at least 1865. 
Wow. Okay. And people access that book. Where do they go to? Uh, you can get it. Uh, a lot of local stores around here have it, but you can also get it on Amazon. Okay. Pick up a copy on Amazon. Go to my website, bobyoungbooks.com. Uh, get in touch with me. I'll come sign it for you. All right. Great. Bob, <laughs> thanks for being a great guest as always and wish you a great 2021. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, Janice. Bye-bye. I close with my favorite Bible verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those, giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community, and offering you wisdom for decision-making so that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Please tune in next Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. here on WKZK, 1600 AM, 103.7 FM, and WKZK.net, because local matters.